0: Uh, Well, we are going to jump back into this very, very profound text in Titus chapter 3. So open uh, your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. And the title of the series uh, of this particular paragraph in Paul's letter to Titus for the Cretan believers is entitled, How Then Shall We Live? As we've noted many times already, Paul addresses this letter to Titus because he has left the island of Creed and Titus remains to set in place what still requires help and assistance from someone like Titus. And part of the instruction that needed to be emphasized to the new believers in those small congregations spread across that island in the Mediterranean was instruction about how to live as believers in a in a very depraved culture. Remember, we keep going back to that testimony that the Cretans were always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so the question then is, how how do we live in this culture? Uh, how do we re- relate, and what, what should our attitude be to those who have not been yet saved? And Paul deals with this beginning in chapter 3 verse 1 and going all the way to the end of verse 8. Last week, we looked at uh, the first two verses and just got into verse 3, and this is what Paul writes there in in this chapter. He says, "...remind them," he's addressing Titus, and he is addressing Titus to address the Cretan believers, "...remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities." to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And we looked last time at these verses as the Christian's high calling. Living in this context, Paul calls upon the believers to have a particular quality of relations, both with authorities and with those in society in general, and as we dig down into into this and and look at the theological motivation for this, even I I do think this is very very important for us to understand. We recognize that uh, we are headed as Christians in this culture to some very difficult times uh, in the the coming years. Uh, it's no question that our society is at a very very fast pace, transitioning to a very hostile attitude towards Christianity biblical Christianity let's say that. And so this instruction that Paul gives is important for us. Now as he gives this instruction Paul is not calling upon the Cretans to be silent or naive about the evil in society. He's not calling upon them to be condoning of it in any way to to not speak out against it or to not call sinners to repentance, but he is calling for a particular attitude that 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 is reflective of as we 're now going to see their humbling past. we saw this at the beginning of verse three we 'll get into it more this morning. but Paul takes this very uh, high calling and this high standard of of attitudes and relationships, and he bases it in this very important reality of of our past, who we once were. He says this in verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We'll get into that a little bit more. We didn't finish it last time. We'll get into it a little bit more, but what Paul does there is essentially paint the picture of every person apart from supernatural regeneration. And he calls upon the Cretans to remember what they once were. That is very essential. It's critical for recognizing and applying the right attitude toward other believers, whether they be in authority or whether they are fellow countrymen. And then beginning in verse 4 through 7, we have another concept that Paul brings in, another theological motivation here and we're going to call this the Christian's Glorious Testimony. And it is one full sentence, beginning in verse 4, going to the end of verse 7. It is a great declaration of the nature of salvation. And as we're going to see, it's it's Trinitarian in nature. We're going to go through this quite slowly because this sentence ranks as one of the most succinct yet detailed treatments of the doctrine of salvation that we find in this form. We, we could certainly look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14, very long sentence as well, much longer than this. And we see there also the Trinitarian nature of salvation, but this one is a little more succinct. And so we need to take our time to go through this text because every one of us in this room must understand these truths. You have to grapple with you have to grasp these truths. This is non-negotiable. This is the pillar of our faith. Paul writes, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, let's just remember again for a moment what Paul calls us to be in society. First of all, with relation to the government, verse 1, he calls us to be submissive and to be obedient. And then in terms of our relationship to society, the evil beast, lazy gluttons, the perpetual liars, Paul gives these instructions. Bring benefit, refuse to slander, resist quarreling, forgive quickly, and show deference. We saw that last week, and then we just started this next point, the Christian's humbling past in verse 3, and we noted that Paul begins the theological justification for that high calling with this very important statement. He says, for we also once were ourselves. Paul grounds his ethical commands not in his own authority as an apostle. He could simply say, I'm an apostle, this is what you must do. But he doesn't, he doesn't base it in his authority, nor does he base it merely in the inherent virtue of these commands. Yes, these commands are right because they are inherently virtuous. But instead, Paul grounds his commands, as he so often does, in profound theology. He wants us to realize, and this is so very important to grasp, that our ethics, what we understand as morality, right relations, is always to be based in theology. We don't just do things because it's arbitrary or God just decided it out of thin air. No, all of the commands that he gives to us arise out of a theological foundation. Consider, for example, what Paul does in Philippians chapter 2. You're familiar with that. It begins, like Titus 3, with instructions about how to relate to other Christians, about how to consider their preferences above your own. He gives a series of exhortations along those lines, being selfless, being sacrificial, etc. And then what does he do in verses 5 through 11? He gives us one of the greatest Christological statements that we find in the entire scriptures. He ties ethical commands to profound theology, and that's how we always must think that Every command that we have been given in the Word of God, everything that He gives to us as the right response, as the right attitude, as the right behavior, it's not capricious. It's not, it's not drawn from thin air. It's not arbitrary. It always comes from a deeper, more profound theological basis. And it is that basis which puts the obligation upon us to follow God's Word. And here in particular, as we see in Titus 3, Paul grounds his commands about proper conduct to authorities, proper conduct in civil society. In other words, proper conduct with unbelievers. He 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 grounds that, first of all, in the doctrine of universal depravity. We, we see that in verse 3, and then in the doctrine of supernatural grace. We're going to get into that this morning. Let's look at that doctrine of 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 universal depravity. Paul says, first of all, if if, if you're thinking through this, he says to Titus and the Cretans, remember something. Remember your own depravity. He says, you were once foolish yourself. In fact, he includes himself in this to describe his own past before his regeneration. And we, we looked at the fact that this foolishness had to do with with the absence of spiritual understanding. Secondly, he said, we were also once disobedient. And that term for disobedience has special reference to the commands of God. Not only in in our past was there an ignorance, a foolishness about spiritual things, but there also was an active disobedience even to that which we did know, even to that which was clear even to that which was in our understanding, nonetheless, we were disobedient. In other words, there's culpability. It's not just that we can stand in in the last days, if you're an unbeliever, that you could stand and say, well, I just didn't understand. I didn't have the mental capacity. Paul says here, no, you were actively disobedient. In fact, we all were. Thirdly, he says, we were deceived, led astray like Sailors who 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 look to the wrong stars, look to the planets to navigate at night, only to realize that they'll be led off course, like sheep. Isaiah says, "We have all gone astray." Moreover, Paul says, "We were once enslaved." The the term for enslaved here refers to being held in bondage, forced into service to another, and and that which Forced us into service, Paul defines first of all as lusts. The term refers to appetites that are corrupted and spawned by sin. Even things that are inherently human and in and of themselves not necessarily evil. Our past is marked by the fact that those appetites, those human appetites, were corrupted, they were twisted. They were made to hunger for things in ways that were contrary to the purpose for which God created them in us. Not only that, however, we were enslaved not just to the desire, but we were enslaved also to the fulfillment of that desire. We were enslaved to that feeling that comes when those sinful hungers are satisfied, We were enslaved to them. The term that's used here is actually the term from which we get hedonism. Paul says essentially, before our regeneration, and Paul includes himself in this as one of the most religious men in the world at that time, he says, I was once like this, enslaved to the satisfaction of lust. I was once a hedonist. And to make sure that we don't exclude ourselves from certain categories in sinful society, Paul adds this this adjective here, various, not just that there are certain, maybe one or two lusts that we can think of and we can look at ourselves and say, well, I've, I've never struggled with that particular enslavement. No, Paul says various. He's not trying to be limited here to say it's only sexual lust, for example. Instead, various includes all kinds of different appetites and their pleasures across the spectrum, across the the whole range of human experience. And Paul says, you know what? We were enslaved to this. You could look at Romans chapter 6. We won't look there, but Romans chapter 6 gives us Paul's exposition there of this very reality and of how God breaks that enslavement moreover number 5 he says we were we were spending our lives we were you know living our days in malice and envy the idea there is mean spiritedness and the inability to accept one's someone else's prosperity In other words, Paul says this is what marks our our unsaved lives, the unregenerate life that we once lived, that there was this mean-spiritedness. We actually wanted others to suffer. That's mean-spiritedness. You want others to feel pain. And that is a mark of an unbeliever when you look at those, whether it's your enemies or just your neighbors, and you, 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 you relish when their lives are made difficult. But not only that, but you also hate it when they prosper. That's what envy is. It's the inability to accept someone else's prosperity, to look at how someone else flourishes and then be tremendously upset at the fact that that person is prospering more than me or even equal with me or in some way, more than what we deem that is just. Not only that, Paul says, the unbeliever is marked by hatefulness. This term is a little difficult to define. It could be either an active hatefulness or a passive hatefulness of being hated. It probably is a passive hatefulness in that it refers to being despicable. We were despicable. We were loathsome. We were Worthy of hatred. And then he expresses the active aspect of that when he says, and hating one another. Speaks of an aversion to others that is so characteristic of the unregenerate state. Just look at first John and how often John will say that if you hate your brother, you you have not come to know God. There's no way that you can hate your brother and and claim that you know Jesus Christ. Hatred is integral to the unregenerate state. And contrary to that, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 and and 10, that when regeneration comes, we are then God-taught to love one another. It becomes part of our DNA that the true believer is marked by a love that he can't even explain. All of a sudden, he's loving people that he's never loved before. But Paul says, in all of this, this is what we once were. This is our humbling past. We were ignorant. But not only that, we were active lawbreakers. We were lost. We were hedonistic. We were self-absorbed. We we were despicable, and, and we were hateful. That's who we once were. And as Paul gives us this high calling in verses 1 and 2, he says, now, Titus, make sure you communicate to the Cretans this reminder. Why are they to respond to the, the evil people in society this way? Why are they to have that particular response? And the answer is, well, you were just like that. You were just like that. That's one of the reasons why. Don't think you have the moral high ground in terms of your inherent character. Because if you, are on, if you think you're on that moral high ground, uh, that standing above everyone else, understand that that high ground is made up of seven layers of trash, and that seven, those seven layers of trash are found in this list that's your high ground, Paul says. We have to think like John Newton. He wrote a letter. He, he was known for the pastor who wrote hundreds of letters throughout his ministry. He wrote a letter called A Word in Season. And he begins the letter with these words. He says, in this dark and declining day, when iniquity abounds and the awful tokens "...of God's displeasure are multiplying around us, and too many professors," professing Christians, "...not duly sensible of the real cause of all the evils we either feel or have reason to fear, are disputing instead of praying. May the Lord bestow upon you and me," Newton writes, "...and upon all who fear his name a spirit suited to the times." It really sounds like Newton is is referring to our age, an age in which there is a dark and declining day. And, And then he says this, when we look at the ungodly, we are not to hate them, but to pity them, mourn over them, and pray for them nor have we any right to boast over them. For by nature and of ourselves, we are no better than they. Now certainly, even Newton goes on to say this, he says, but their sinfulness should cause in us a dislike. Their sinfulness, he says, should be a a holy indignation in us, as it is recorded of our Lord, who, though full of compassion and tenderness, so that he even wept over his enemies and prayed for his actual murderers, yet looked upon the transgressors with anger, being grieved for their hardness of heart and this is the difficult place in which we find ourselves, especially as to put it in in uh, Newton's words, the dark the darkness uh, is, is strengthening in our day. We must find the, the balance in order to do both of these things, to, to have a holy indignation and a courage to speak against the sin in our society, and that is being, being pushed upon us, and yet at the same time having a, a, an attitude where we do not fall into hate but instead mourn and pray for those who are seeking to increase the darkness. That's Paul's first theological motivation for this high calling. He says you you must remember your humbling past. And any time that you're tempted to look with scorn and hatred upon your neighbor." and and the, the people that are manifesting such depravity in the open, we must keep in mind that, but for the grace of God, there go I. I, Paul says, was once one of these. And Titus, you were too, and remind the Cretans, that they were in the same category. This leads now to the third major point of this section. As Paul continues to ground the high calling within profound doctrine, we get to this section that we'll call the Christian's Glorious Testimony. The Christian's Glorious Testimony. Not only are these ethical imperatives founded in our remembrance of our depravity, but also it's founded they're founded in our understanding of how we were rescued from that. And this is very important because again, what can happen when we look down upon society and we we look and scoff and hate the the evildoers, we can we we can implicitly express this idea that, you know what, I was the one who who rescued myself out of that of darkness. That that somehow I was responsible for getting me out of there to where I am today. And Paul wants us to understand, no, you're not. There's someone else who is responsible for where you are today. Notice how verse 4 states it as he begins this long sentence from verses 4 to 7, this this very powerful uh, summation of the doctrine of salvation. He says this, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. That first word, but, is a very precious word. It reminds us of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, that when we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive. We have the same idea here. In light of the description that is given to us about us in verse 3, we have a contrast. And this contrast begins in verse 4. And verse 4, first of all, as we think of our glorious testimony, it's going to provide some historical context. We have to understand that our testimony, our salvation, has a basis, a historical basis. Let's first look at that. Paul gives us this basis in verse 4. Now, he's only going to get to the idea of save salvation in verse 5. If you look at verse 5, then he's going to come around to say he saved us. But verse 4 is all about that historical context. And, and he, he begins it with this, this word, when. So we have to look at the historical context of which he speaks the historical context that serves as the context for our salvation. Now, notice what he describes in this historical context. He says, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. What does that mean? Kindness. The word kindness here is, is defined as follows. It's the quality of being helpful or beneficial. It's the quality of being helpful or beneficial. It was used in other ter- or other contexts outside the Bible, and it's used within the Bible as well to uh, refer to the kindness of other people. In fact, the only other time where this term is mentioned is in Ephesians 2, verse 7, to speak of the kindness of toward us in Christ Jesus and in Acts 28 verse 2 to speak of the kindness of the residents on the island of Malta it's it's used both of human beings and of God to speak of that that disposition to be helpful to bring benefit and Paul applies this to the character of God this is one of God's attributes Paul says when the kindness of God appeared. But not only that, he says, when the love for mankind appeared. In the original, it's just one word. it's, It's the word from which we get philanthropy. When the philanthropy of God appeared. Think of that. What does philanthropy mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word philia, referring to love, especially a friendly kind of love, and then the term anthropos, meaning man, so you put those together, and it's love for man or love for mankind. So understand what what Paul is is referring to here. When he gives us the historical context of our salvation, he says it comes from the, the, the appearance of these qualities and their qualities of God, kindness, and love for mankind. And what is so amazing here is that these qualities stand in direct antithesis to everything that we looked at back in verse 3. Remember the qualities of man on his own, those seven qualities. And think of of them in contrast to the character of God. And it is diametrically opposed. But not only that, but what is so amazing to note here is that when you look at verse 3 and all of the qualities we once had, what does it merit? It does not merit kindness. It does not merit philanthropy from God. And yet, this is exactly what God demonstrates. This is exactly what God shows to sinful man, to depraved mankind. Kindness and love. And these things, as I said, are not merited. They're not warranted. But God, in His own character, shows them. He puts them on display. And it's very important to consider that and the implications of that because so often we would look at verse 3 and we would say, well, that must receive wrath. And we'd be right. It must receive wrath. For God to be God He must pour out wrath on everyone who is described under the umbrella of verse 3. Yet, Paul says, for God to be God, he manifests kindness and love for this mankind. And we have a problem with trying to, 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 to reconcile those truths and we must admit that so often it is hard for us to understand and to grasp the benevolence of God, the, the, the goodness of God, the love of God for those who merit everything to the opposite. I like what John Owen said on this. He said this, Men are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it is a boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. And I speak here of saints, John Owen says. They can judge him hard, austere, severe, almost implacable, and fierce. The very worst affections of the very worst of men, the most hated by God. Is not this soul deceit from Satan? Was it not His design from the beginning to inject such thoughts of God? Assure yourself then, there is nothing more acceptable to the Father than for us to keep our hearts unto Him as the eternal fountain of all that rich grace which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. Indeed, We are afraid to have good thoughts of God. And that shows up even in our thinking about God's attitude to the sinners in our society. We think it is impossible that He would love them. And Paul says, first of all, remember who you were. And then he says, remember who God is. And God is kind and has love for mankind. And notice he goes on to say this. He says, when the kindness of God our Savior... Now, remember, we've seen two couplets already of this title throughout the letter in each chapter. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. You have this title used by Paul in a very particular manner. He uses it in a very special way in, in two, two, two times in each of these couplets. He uses the title. The first time, it, 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 it'll always refer to God the Father. And then the second time, it'll refer to God the Son. And, and we saw that back in chapter 1, verse 3. He refers to God the Savior, who's the Father. And then in verse 4, to God the Son as the Savior. And then in chapter 2, we saw this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at verses uh, 10 and 11 and and saw there too the the difference between God the Father in verse 10 and God the Son in verse 13. And here we have the third and final couplet. Here he refers to God our Savior. And it is a reference to God the Father because he's going to use the term Savior to apply to the Son in a few more verses. In verse 6 to be exact. It is God our Savior. And again, here is it's very critical to understand this, to follow what Paul is emphasizing. We sometimes will exclusively reserve the saving activity of the Savior to Jesus Christ. And we have a harder time thinking that it is God the Father who also is Savior. God the Father is disposed to be a saving God. It is who He is. And it is the misunderstanding of that that throughout church history has created this idea that God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, is a God of wrath and anger and all He does is think angry thoughts against mankind but somehow Jesus came and placated that and now God the Father has to be kind to man but paul describes god the father as inherently a savior one who is disposed to save unworthy sinful depraved mankind and he says this kindness and this love for mankind it appeared It appeared. We saw this already back in 2 verse 11, where Paul says the grace of God appeared. The grace of the Father appeared. And we noted back there that that idea of appearance was a reference to the incarnation of the Son. God the Father, who is himself a Savior, sends God the Son, who is one with the saving activity, and that incarnation is the demonstration of God's grace. And here Paul uses the same idea and says not only is the incarnation the evidence of the grace of God the Father, but the incarnation is also the evidence of the kindness of God the Father and the love that He has for mankind. It is a reference to the incarnation of the Son of God. The incarnation of the Son. And remember this, every time that we sing those Christmas carols, the incarnation of the Son, is the appearance of God's grace. It is the appearance of God's kindness. It is the appearance of His concern for man. That's the historical context of salvation. It's all built upon that appearance. But now Paul is going to speak of its supernatural basis, the supernatural basis of our testimony. We, we saw the historical context of our testimony. It's all anchored in the incarnation of the Son of God. But now we're going to look at its supernatural basis. Our, our testimony has a, a supernatural, not a natural basis, and after he, he's described that, he's he talks now in the beginning half of verse 5 of this basis. Now, what's interesting to note, notice now we have the main clause. He saved us. That's God the Father saved us. Now, in all the translations, we put it up at the beginning of verse 5, but in the original, it actually is found later. Paul first talks about the historical context in verse 4, first part of the sentence And then he talks about the basis in the first half of verse 5. And then he says, he saved us. And, And by wording it this way, Paul is drawing all this emphasis to this phrase, he saved us. He saved us. And to explain the supernatural basis, Paul is going to use what he often does. He's going to use an affirmation and a denial. The basis for our salvation when we think of our testimony and how we were saved, this is so very important to understand. When people say, you know, how were you saved? We have to understand this basis that he describes in the beginning of verse, verse 5. And it starts with the denial, and then he moves to an affirmation. Let's look at first at the denial. He says, not on the basis of deeds. Literally, not by works. Not by works. If you're in Christ, you need to understand this very clearly, that your salvation, the fact that you are in Christ and that you have inherited eternal life has absolutely nothing to do with what you have done. It's not by works. Paul uses the typical word here that he uses elsewhere, such as in Romans 3 and Romans 4, Romans 5, to speak of religious activities, not by religious activities. Let me read, for example, Romans 3, 27 to 28. Paul says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. We have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul is so very clear on this. We could look elsewhere as well, but Paul is very clear that our salvation from that previous depravity has nothing to do with what we've done. Nothing. Zilch. Not 10%, not 5%, not 1%, not zero percent Zero, one percent. Paul says it absolutely, not by works which we have done. In fact, he even says this, and this is somewhat of an intriguing statement, and scholars debate this a little bit, but he says not on the basis of works which we have done in righteousness. Now, that could be a reference to self-righteousness, such as what was characteristic of the Jews, Romans 10 verses 1 to 4. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own. And so they did all these things to make themselves righteous so that they could be accepted by God and and they could say, way to go, I've done all the check marks down the boxes, I'm ready to be accepted. Self-righteousness, and that is certainly denied. But when Paul says done in righteousness, it's possible here that he is even extending this, not only to the time before conversion, when man tries to make his way into heaven on his own, but also extending it to the time after conversion. And Paul is making an absolute statement here and is saying that we are not saved, not on the basis of self-righteousness before our conversions, but also we are not saved on the basis of what we do after, once we are, are already in Christ. And that's important because, again, it's so very easy to preach a gospel that you are saved by faith alone, and then, and then to embrace that gospel, and then all of a sudden to think, well, now I have to preserve my salvation through my works. And many people believe that. I, I have to keep it together if I'm actually now going to make it to heaven. Jesus has taken care of my past and, I, and I've been forgiven of all that depravity, but now he's given me a new chance, a new start. And now I have to really do my duty, and that's going to work with God's righteousness to get me the rest of the way to heaven. And a lot of people believe that, and it's a damnable heresy. It's not anything that you do that is the basis for your salvation. In both cases, works are never the basis for salvation. Not before regeneration, not after. Never. Never. One commentator put it this way. He says, God does not save on the basis of good things people may do, even though it is good when people do good things. While obedience to God's command commands is never to be denigrated. In itself, human obedience cannot establish a right relationship with God. To put it in the words of Charles Spurgeon, he said this, beware of self-righteousness. The black devil of licentiousness destroys his hundreds, but the white devil of self-righteousness destroys his thousands. So if we're not saved on the basis of works, on the basis of what? And Paul has one of these strong contrasting conjunctions here. We are saved not according to works, but according to mercy. The term there, mercy, speaks of kindness. It speaks of concern expressed for someone Who has need and can do nothing about it. Kindness is when we stoop to help those who can't help themselves. And this is exactly what God demonstrates. Because He is kind, because He has love for mankind, it is that which motivated Him to send His Son, not our works, and then His actual saving of specific people is motivated, not according to our merit, not according to the deeds which we did or the deeds which we will do, but it's done only according to Himself, according to His mercy. Romans 9 verse 32 refers to this term mercy. When Paul writes this, he saved us to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Or Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us Alive. And what's interesting here as well, it doesn't come through in the English, but to cap off the antithesis that is present in this verse, in the denial and affirmation, the pronoun his is very emphatic in where it's placed in the original. All the focus now is taken off of sinful man, and it is all put on God and God alone as the Savior. He is responsible for it all. And then he finally gets to this statement, as I've rearranged it here in the text, to follow the word order. Paul then says in the middle of verse 5, he saved us. He saved us. The ignorant, the lawbreakers, the lost, the hedonists, the self-absorbed, the despicable, the hateful, he saved us. And that is what Paul uses as the foundation for his ethical commands. He says, remember what you once were and remember who God is and what he has done. You have not been saved by your good effort, by the intensity of your zeal. You have not been Saved by the strength of your faith. You've not been saved by the tears of your remorse. You've not been saved by your efforts at reform. You're not, you've not been saved by your clinging to him. None of those things have saved you. None. No contribution that you have made. No effort. No zeal. Not even your love. That has not saved you but He has saved you. You must never forget that. Mark Dever has said it this way, every other religion in the world is the religion of do, but Christianity alone is the religion of done. Amen to that. Now, drawing this to a close, let's think of some implications already, some final questions before I pray, first of all, do you realize what you once were? If you read verse 3 and you say, that's not me, you're blind. You're blind. You have way too high of a view of yourself. If you read verse 3 and you think, that's someone else, that's not me, you need to go back to that and plead with the Lord that He would open your eyes so that you might see yourself as He sees you. You are in verse 3. Do you realize what you once were? Secondly, do you grasp how God has saved you? Do do you dwell upon that? Do you think upon that? Does it it cause you to pause and and to sit still in wonder and think, how could this be so? Or when you think of your salvation, it's kind of like, well, it makes sense. If it makes sense to you, if you look at your salvation, you say, well, yeah, God should have. You're blind. And you need to go back to, to verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. Now, you need to look at your salvation and say, it just doesn't make sense to me. It, it, doesn't, ha- it, it doesn't jive. It, and it, it must draw you then to the character of God. It, it, it's not in me. So the only explanation for this is that it isn't God. Do you understand God? Do you understand Him to be a kind God? Do you understand Him to be a God who has love for mankind, not just for all of mankind, but for you? And then fourth, does this impact your attitude to the lost? When you look upon the depravity and the darkness, does it impact your view of the lost? This verse must. And if it doesn't, you're blind. He saved us. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we are on the one hand so humbled by what these verses teach us about ourselves. Utter inability, the, the absolute opposite of, inab- of ability, the absolute opposite of merit, of worthiness, of anything in ourselves to commend ourselves to you. We, we had the opposite, and yet you are a God of kindness and love, a God of grace And that you, while we were yet dead, made us alive. While we were sinners, you justified us. May this truth be ever on our minds. May it temper how we think of ourselves, of you, and of those around us. May it motivate us to love and good deeds, because that's who you are. May it be our desire to reflect that because of what you've done in our lives. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.